Welcome to Empower to Grow, the podcast. I am your host, Hanan Al-Basha, the business doctor. Following our conversations with empowered women who woke up one day and consciously claimed, I am more than enough. I am worthy. I am empowered to grow. And along their empowering journey towards realizing their own potential and their quest for growth, they became a beacon of hope and guidance for others. May you also find your inner power to grow. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Uncharted Discussions of Empower to Grow. I'm your host, Hanan Basha, and I'm still with the energizing Nisha Fair. Nisha, hi, how are you? Hi, I'm great. How are you? Fine, thank you. Energized by our discussion, as I said. Nisha is mm-hmm. an author and a researcher and a pleasure educator, which um, also entails talking about trauma and being a survivor herself. That's where her work has stemmed for. Nisha, I want to start, you know, we, we discussed a few topics in our initial um, episode, but I was a neuroendocrine system. And it requires a healthy neuroendocrine system in order to be able to function optimally. So I really, in my work like that, because a lot of the people who find me have had difficult experiences in relationships, Mm -hmm. I like to go way back to the beginning and look at like the pleasure of a sunset, the pleasure of walking barefoot on warm stones, the pleasure of watching light spilling in through a window, the pleasure of a warm bath on a cold day. Mm. So these really sensory pleasures and using them to prove to my body that I'm safe, that it's okay to receive goodness. It's okay to feel good and that nothing bad is going to happen to me. If I allow myself the abundance of this sensory experience. I love that. And, and as you said, it translates into very small acts that exist in our everyday life. We don't have to go out of our way for those sensory pleasures to, but it does take an awareness to start recognizing them and kind of tracking them. So you're kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. let's, let's audit all the small sensory pleasures that we have on a daily basis. Yes, big time. So a lot of the work I do is around helping people cultivate a pleasure practice because pleasure is a practice in our in our world today, in the state of things as they are, yeah. there are every time we every time we look at a screen, every time we talk to someone on the phone, there are more and more forces, incidences, notifications eating away at our well-being, at mm-hmm. our pleasure, at our experience of feeling just okay in the world, not even like orgasmic, just okay. Right. Yep. So uh, in the cultivation of a pleasure practice, some of the things that we do involve, I call it like a pleasure, um, turn your house into a pleasure obstacle course. Mm -hmm. So put things in your way that will force you to trip over a really nice smelling flower or um, and uh, putting essential oils by your desk that you can like rub on your hands and smell every few minutes. So really, we have to, again, sort of to pick up from the last conversation. Yep. If it's not feeding you, it's feeding on you. Yeah. Part of that philosophy asks us to nourish ourselves with things that do feed us and to live a life that is 
um, just full of all of those things that we can control because that is really the reality of our reality right now is there's so many things that are completely out of our control, but pleasure is within our control. I can choose to put a rose on my bedside. And so that the first thing I look up at in the morning, when I open my eyes is something beautiful. Yep. I can choose to hold my coffee closer to my chest a little bit longer and breathe it in for five minutes and just really let that aroma soak into every single one of my cells. I can choose all of these things. They're free. They're free. They don't cost a penny. You don't need therapy. You don't need any special treatment or protocol or um, equipment. Mm -hmm. These are things that we can just do simply by choosing to experience goodness and delight and yeah, things that taste good, like really juicy, delicious fruits and um, a really nice warm hug with a partner. So I really think that, you know, these are, these things are everywhere once we start looking for them, but it's a matter of tuning, recalibrating our bodies and our awareness to be able to um, see them really. And to then start instituting more of them into our daily lives and how we, how we live. You've said something really important here. You said choosing to see them. And um, I know with trauma, and I'm not the specialist over here, so, so I would love for you to shed a bit of light there. I know definitely with, with trauma, part of trauma response is believing that you have no choice. I know I went through that, um, going through forms of abusive um, uh, situations and relationships that I have no choice. I've got to endure it because I have no choice. And thus, one day I woke up to realize I, I have a choice. And the, I'm paying the price anyway. I might as well pay the price in something that, you know, I choose mm-hmm. rather than paying uh, a forced price in something that, as you said, is speeding on me. So mm-hmm. this part of your work, or just, is this the starting point? Switching that I have no choice to there is a choice and that choice entails the very small, free um, and, and, available acts to you? Definitely. Um, you know, to, to your point about trauma responses, the other thing about, so I can have a trauma response at the moment and then the effect of having to either live in that same circumstance or not getting to heal from that trauma response means that I can start to I call it a cast. I wear this, like this body cast really. Mm -hmm. And the story of that body cast isn't just, I don't have a choice. It's, I can't feel good. I'm not good. Uh, My, my um, health and well-being don't matter. Mm -hmm. Death is imminent. Right. And so this is where, and I talk about this in the book that scarcity is not a mindset, it's a tissue state. These are all of the thoughts that we're having, the experiences of ourselves, all again, those like really mean voices in our heads. They're not just thoughts, they're, they're part of the complex of the stress responses or the body cast that we can start to wear when we have to use our stress responses over a long period of time. So. Anytime we can interrupt that tissue state, whether it's by dancing for a few minutes, going for a walk, looking at a window at like a beautiful day, 
then I can pull myself out of that, whether it's hypo or hyper arousal, that, um, that triggered state. Mm -hmm. And I can move myself into what's called parasympathetic ground, which is the rest and digest, feed and breathe part of our nervous systems. Yeah. And what's beautiful about this, this transition is that parasympathetic ground is for pleasure production. It's for, it's where we're most available to connection with other people, where we're most emotionally regulated. It's where we're really good listeners. It's where we like to laugh and it's where we're most creative, but it's also where we are most aligned and connected to our personal, uh, emotional and spiritual truth. So I've used this whole idea of, you know, these, they're, I hate using the word hack, but um, pleasure tools yeah. as ways <laughs> of pulling ourselves out of this, this track. Cause that's really what it is. It's just a track and it gets more and more worn down and it becomes a rut and it's so comfortable. And like those little crabs that are pulling yeah. us back in, exactly. we don't just have the people around us acting as crabs. We have the stories in our own bodies. And especially if you have, you know, wounded younger parts in there, those wounded parts are going to be like, no, no, come back here. Exactly. Don't be go feeling good after, you know, you, you need to stay here and hurt because it's, it's safer when we know what the threats are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Your book and the topic mm -hmm. of your book. Fawn yes. and fawning. I would, I would love to delve a little deeper into that because the concept of people pleasing and the concept of accepting certain standards, acts, um, emotions, even as um, that's okay. You know, I'll let this one go. I, I'm okay with this. Mm -hmm. And convincing yourself that that it is acceptable one way or another, just so you please your partner, please your environment, and, and really not not cause any ripples. Can, can we delve a bit deeper into that, please? Absolutely. Um, so the thing about fawn that's really interesting in terms of where we are socioculturally today mm -hmm. is that fawn, while it is a biological stress response that many different mammals, humans included, may avail of, it's socially conditioned within our conditioning of gender. So it's women are socially conditioned to do it and men are socially conditioned to expect it and benefit from it. Wow. Now this is made right. And I'll, we'll go, we're going to go right down that rabbit hole because it's like, it's a bit of a head trip. And then if you were raised in a turbulent home or in a home where you weren't allowed a lot of people who may have been raised in the children are to be seen and not heard school of parenting yeah. here. <laughs> um, uh, so all of these components can then reinforce fawning for us. And I don't, do you want to go back into the, do you want to go back into the social conditioning? I saw you light up when we talked about that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, <laughs> okay. I, that is one of the main things I, I talk about now because realizing that we, and as you said, the, 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 the female social conditioning is so strong as well. And that is a thing why, why actually I wanted to have these conversations 
with women from around the world is speaking to women around the world. I realize we all go through the same conditioning. It's just different, slightly different, you know, kind of um, attributions, cultural attributions and stuff, but it's very similar to, and the bottom line was you can't, you won't, you shouldn't. I'm like, oh my God, you know, now I, I'm re, again, I'm rewriting the narrative for myself of, yes, I can. Yes, I will. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that's why I, I, when you're like, this is part of the social conditioning that women or yeah. females are expected to do it and males are expected to expect it. I'm like, oh my God, you know, we, <laughs> it's been, we've been set up that way. Totally. Totally. It's, and this is where like, it's this kind of, I call it the Bermuda triangle of dating and relationships, but it's really, it's happening everywhere. And the, you know, again, I talk about this in greater detail in the book, but I don't, at no time was there like a round table of Machiavellian sociopaths that sat down and said, okay, so patriarchy, let's figure this out. How are we going to oppress people? How are we going to make people feel awful? How are we going to steal their agency and overpower them every single day? There wasn't. Where we are now is the result of 100,000 years of reinforcing our stress responses. Hmm. So fawn is uh, is a biologically female response. Women are far more predisposed to it because of our um, our sexual hormones and also because we are more likely to produce oxytocin and we benefit from oxytocin. It's one of the ways that we um, mitigate stress and overwhelm for ourselves. Okay. Our definitions of gender have been created, and it's completely subconscious, by our gendered sex, or pardon me, stress responses. So fawn, also known as tendon befriend, which is the tendency to nurture, to care for, um, to be emotionally regulated. Fawn is a more female response and sympathetic drive that kind of fight flight is mm-hmm. a more typical male response. Mm-hmm. So right there we have intimidation and submission. And that is really the story when we're talking about all forms of oppression, it's a relationship of intimidation and submission and those mm-hmm. stress responses that is sympathetic nervous system and fawning or tending and befriending also known as the parasympathetic nervous system or the part of the parasympathetic nervous system that is responsible for um, triggering hypo arousal. So I'm going to pull back because I feel like that was, <laughs> that, uh, but, that was, but that was a bit. Said, it's, we need to understand how our biology works because mm-hmm. again, trying to I'm not saying that we should be going against our biology, but understanding how to harness our biology for our own benefit. And I think yes. that's, that's um, the work you are doing now, right? hundred percent. I mean, this is the, one of the things that I try to encourage people to aim for is to be more than your biology, mm-hmm. to understand those responses and be more than them, because it's not just women who have to be more than their biology, men and non-binary people do too, because our, again, like our biology is hundreds of thousands of years in the making, and it's all been designed around how do we survive? Survival. How do we survive yep. this ice age? How do we survive 
this holy war? How do we survive this Roman or Spanish Inquisition or whatever? Um, it's just all about survival. And if we truly want to thrive as a species and as a society, we need to be more than our biology. So just to give you an idea of um, how this kind of starts for us, because it's, it doesn't start when we're, you know, teenagers or adults doesn't start when we're women having babies. It starts when we're about, well, it starts really early by the age of three. Wow. Children, particularly young girls are aware of their bodies and they're aware of their relationship to the information that's coming in about their bodies. There's a really amazing um, little I think it was a TikTok that I saw not too long ago. And it was this little two-year-old girl. And um, she was black and she had, you know, really tight curls. And she had to wear a little bonnet to bed to make sure that her curls don't get all um, frizzy overnight. Mm -hmm. And she kept taking it off. And her mom, you know, couldn't figure it out. And then she got a little cartoon. There was a little cartoon, you know, video that showed um, there were two little girls of color and then there was one white girl who was like, why are you wearing that thing? And they went through this whole thing of why the bonnet is amazing and what it helps you know, the hairdo and why, um, why they should want to wear it. And after, within a very short time of just being two years old, of watching this little cartoon, she was loving her bonnet, she was loving her hair, she was feeling more, um, more confidence about herself. Yeah. So that's how young we are when we're starting to interpret the messages that are coming from the media and from our, our homes. Yeah. Yeah. What happens in terms of biologically at the age of seven or eight, when we start to go through puberty and our hormones start changing, the increase in estrogen that young girls start to experience, it increases their self-awareness. It increases their awareness about their environment. It increases their emotional intelligence, but it also decreases their self-confidence. Hmm. So we have that biologically happening in tune with all of the messaging that's coming from social media saying your hair isn't right, your body isn't right, your face isn't right, your skin isn't right, your voice isn't right, right? That you have to be different than who you are. At the same time as those girls are going through these uh, heightened experiences of awareness and reduced confidence, young boys are getting with testosterone, they're getting more confidence, they're getting, um, they're getting risk-taking behavior, and these, the testosterone is encouraging them to push boundaries. Mm -hmm. So we have this, these biologically wired to submit and intimidate. It's mm -hmm. in our DNA. And so this is something that if we don't get ahead of it while we're in our teen years, we'll take right into adulthood. Wow. That, mm -hmm. That's, that's fascinating. And um, when I started uh, the kind of, I say my, my healing journey, when my healing journey started, I started doing a lot of reading and, and listening and, you know, tuning into um, everything and everyone that speaks of topics and stuff. I started becoming a lot more aware, as you said, of my own triggers and, and the stories. And the, sometimes even I'm able to pinpoint the situation or, you know, that I call it imprints now. And we, mm -hmm. I believe that, you know, every person and every situation that we meet across our lives create, leaves an imprint on us, positive or negative, empowering or disempowering. 
And I realized that, that I could go back sometimes and, and track the imprint of when this shifted my narrative, this shifted my perspective on mm. something. And thus mm-hmm. I started becoming a lot more aware now. We, uh, we have a son, he's 11. And I started becoming mm. a lot more aware in our conversations of what I'm saying to him, how I'm saying it to him, just to be able to, to be as aware as possible. I know, I mean, I know he will have his own issues <laughs> i'm hoping not a lot of traumas but you know at least I'm, I'm putting in the best effort to to have these uncomfortable conversations and and talk about you know how how we should how we should be dealing with with girls and you know growing up and and mm. and how he should be feeling about himself and the thought process that he should be considering and you know even privilege that he's got or um lack of whatever it is awareness is a big thing and again we weren't raised with this kind of awareness not at all (laughs) I'm amazed you know when I think about it like like you're having these conversations with your son at 11 it's just it's so it's so encouraging to me and also it's like just imagine what these kids are going to be like at 20 yeah right like when they've had an extra 10 years of these insights and the benefiting of the emotional intelligence of their parents. Like, I really do feel hopeful about our future. I do because I mean, I, the extent of my parents didn't talk to me about racism, although I was very quick to point it out in them, which they did not like (laughs) (laughs) growing up. Um, But the only bit of information that I got about, you know, sex and bodies was like, there will be hair here's a razor. It was very like we, we did it. I'm, I'm Egyptian. Uh, I, um, mm-hmm. I live in the Middle East and these conversations don't happen. I didn't have these yeah. conversations. I didn't even have them when I got married. It was like, okay, you know, just take care of yourself. If you need anything, let me know. And it was like, you know, that was a conversation yeah. with my mom. My dad wouldn't even try to, to talk about it. And those are the kind of things that, you know, so again, you depend on the friends and the, and the, well, there wasn't social media then, but, you know, you depend on other sources of information that might not necessarily be, be helpful. Um, they might actually, as you said, they, they might be imprinting in a way that, that harms us and harms our own self-esteem and exploring pleasure or having that kind of a relationship with your partner saying, you know, this is let's explore here and let's see what we enjoy together. And let's, you know, let's talk about it even. This is not definitely not typical. I know it's definitely not typical in the Middle East. And I know that it's even not typical in in Europe, in the States. In North America. Yeah. We weren't taught, you know, at all. And I think it's, it's not, we weren't taught how to have difficult conversations period or how to communicate many of us, you know, we were just, we were taught to be quiet and say yes and obey and, you know, do what you're told and get good grades. And that's it. You know, we were never taught how to express ourselves or, you know, how to connect with what felt authentic. So I think that we have to really, you know, one of the things that I really try to encourage people to see is that, Lowering your expectations of yourself is an act of grace, right? And knowing that like, it's going to feel weird and uncomfortable and like anything, like if you were, if you had never ridden a bike until the age of 30 or 40 years of age, it would be weird and scary. 
it would be wobbly and you'd probably fall off, you know? And so we have to really incorporate that understanding and that self-compassion with ourselves when we're having conversations about sex and pleasure in our relationships, because they're not easy and no one taught us how to do them. And so it's just a matter of having compassion for one another too. You know, I think that's something that's really missing um, in a lot of, a lot of relationships, especially in, in, um, in casual ones or in relationships where, you know, maybe resentment has, has kind of gone on longer than it should have. And Mm -hmm. there may be um, longstanding issues there. Compassion tends to go out the window pretty quickly. Yeah, that's true. And it tends to be the person who is the people pleaser that has the compassion as opposed to the other person. So. Okay. I want to end with this question. Okay. If we, okay, it's a two part question. (laughs) The first part is if I've never had this conversation before with myself or with my partner, first of all, how do I recognize that I am a people pleaser? Like what are the telltale signs that I would like, okay, I've got to have it. And then the second part of the question is what are the first steps do I start doing that I start taking or, you know, what do I start doing about it? Okay. So just to clarify, we're talking, we're coming back to talking about fawn and how to kind of dismantle that for ourselves. Right. Yes. So I think the first thing And I'm going to compare it again to fight flight because it tends to be the one that people can recognize more easily. Mm -hmm. Um, Fight flight is really obvious. We know what it feels like in our bodies when our hearts are racing or when we feel anxious, like that's really obvious and clear. Fawn is so much subtler. Okay. So what happens when a fawn response is triggered is all of the, well, all of our connection to our organs below our diaphragm gets disrupted or cut off. And so what you may feel is a feeling of lack of feeling. Um, Another thing that I really, a lot of people notice is a feeling of heaviness, maybe through your chest or maybe in your belly, a feeling of contracting, maybe like you're kind of moving away from whatever the target or the, the source of the people pleasing is mm-hmm. um, because fawning, we can mix it with other stress responses. It can also feel like really, um, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'll take care of this, you know, really um, almost participatory and, and um, I don't want to say keyed up, but, but uh, maybe a little bit more active. Okay. Right. Um, okay. So it, it really, it's tricky because it has a lot of different faces but the, I'd say the clearest, one of a few of the clearest is um, a feeling like you can't talk or like you can't talk authentically. Some people are like, oh yeah, that's fine. Even when it's completely not. Mm. Or a feeling of just clamming up completely. So maybe like jaws shut. Um, I know when that used to happen to me, it felt like my lips were just sewn shut and I just couldn't open them. And that happens because when the stress response is triggered, all of the blood flow moves out of our language center and our speech centers. Um, So we literally lose the connection to our language center in our brain when the response is triggered. Yeah, and so this also has long-term effects in terms of being able to use your voice authentically. So the voice piece is a big one. Um, Some people feel a feeling of like 
disgust and resentment are kind of like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Hmm. Um, so that can be, that can be um, obvious for some people. Um, the one that's really kind of comes forward is just this feeling of shrinking. Hmm. Right. And so either moving away from the person or just sh- like your energy shrinks and kind of squelches down that um, instead of feeling like you can move around and like you can, you know, move your arms and your body around, it's just this feeling of immobility. Um, so that's, there's sort of somatic qualities as opposed to those loud, you know, heart yeah. racing, um, yeah. anxiety, lashing out, you know, sy- sympathetic activation is very expressive and loud and fawning or our hypoarousal uh, activation is, it's quiet, you know? So we really have to be looking at the behaviors is sometimes a little bit easier. So if mm-hmm. you are going along with something that you don't wanna do, um, saying yes to things that you'd really not rather be involved in, but you feel like you have to, to keep the family together or um, to keep someone happy. Hmm. Right. And the other thing, and I just want to inject here a little bit of an invitation for self-compassion because another one of the effects of fawn, which makes it so difficult to identify is that the stress response is inhibiting our awareness of ourselves at the body level. Yeah. So some people can fawn for years and not know it because their awareness is Hmm. being um, inhibited. So be gentle. Yeah. yeah, I always say that. Process. Whatever it is, um, be gentle with yeah. yourself. Hold yourself. There's, there's like, no, yeah, there's no, uh, no fast moves. I mean, I really, this is the thing with Fawn is that it's a very, we only discovered it in 2000. It was the stress response itself was discovered in 2000. It was named only in 2013. Wow. Okay. Right. So this is all like, we're at the frontier of trying to understand what this means for us as women, as people in relationships, as parents. So um, I really, I really hope to inspire people to be curious as opposed to like go on the attack and go for the jugular for things instead, just like lean back and try to notice and really connect with what's happening on the body level. Do, is therapy um, the best approach to to deal with fawning and to to start you know kind of disintegrating the reasons and and seeing the how what to do next about it if um if the therapist is educated in fawn and is attuned to the fact that their client may fawn with them Cause that's the other okay. thing we can fawn yeah. through our personal growth. We can fawn with our therapists and go along with things because mm-hmm. they're the ones who with the degrees and they've done all the work and they know. So I guess, right. So um, again, this is new material. This is new content for people. Um, and I think that as long as your therapist is aware of the possibility of triggering fawn in their clients, then yes, therapy can be very helpful. But, um, you know, most of my client, my coaching clients see me for maybe five or 10 sessions. A lot of the, I really feel like self-directed work and learning to trust yourself. You can't go to therapy for that. No amount of therapy is going to make you trust yourself. It's about like really connecting with your body and learning to, to really honor your own intuition and your own instincts. 
Okay. Um, yeah. I love that. So definitely come to you as, and yes, and they can get come that to me. started. To, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Nisha, thank you so much. You've definitely shed a lot, shared a lot of insights into a topic that I, I know most of the people I personally know, including myself, um, we've, we've been fawning one way or another. Um, as, as you're talking, a lot of examples are coming up for me. It's like, oh, the, the time, you know, that I accepted, we wanted to go to the movies, but, you know, my friend said, no, we're going to go somewhere else. I was like, okay, you know, I don't want to rock the boat. Let's just do this for this time. Or, you know, even those mm-hmm. small things or the accepting things that work in a work or in a relationship of sorts, friendship or romantic that I'm not comfortable with, or I don't want to do, or, you know, I'm just, or maybe that's not, that's not what I, how I feel right there. And then, but also um, accepted it. And I thought people pleasing was, it's amazing that you've, um, um, how you've highlighted that it is a biological response as well, because um, there were also times where I realized, especially when I was uncomfortable in a work setting, that I would, somehow and I know that my body is very psychosomatic it always manifests the symptoms really fast um but there will be those times where I just suddenly I get a cold and I lose my voice and reflecting back and I know I had this reflection recently it's uh it's always been some situations where I felt very uncomfortable um and I just I lose it and um you know that protection exactly my, my body mm-hmm. was, uh, was protecting me one way or another. So thank you yeah. so much. Um, this has really been a very interesting and insightful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real treat to connect with you. <laughs> me too. Well, um, as Nisha said, stop, breathe, um, and, and listen to yourself, listen to your body tune in, um, give yourself the space and the grace that whatever has happened, um, it's not your fault. It's just how our biology has been set up for us. And um, just um, put in the effort and the awareness to know where to go from here. And we have um, uh, professionals and, and researchers and experts like Nisha who are equipped to support us to be able to find the pleasure in our life on every front and more importantly, understand how and when we can consent in a way that does not harm us biologically. So um, Mm -hmm. I wish you awareness and I wish you love and I wish you abundance and prosperity. As always, thank you for joining us and I'll see you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Empowered to Grow podcast. For further engagement with a tribe of empowered women, join my Facebook group, Empowered to Grow, or visit my website, www.hananelbasha.com. I'll catch you on the next episode. And until then, know that empowered you empowers others. Love, abundance, and prosperity to you all.